When Londoner Will Hyde took a road trip to explore the origins of country music in Tennessee and Virginia, he was surprised how often he felt right at home. When I went to this part of America, you find out that all these instruments have come from the British Isles, and the banjo has African-American influences. The historical aspect of this blew me away. Travel writer Tony Horwitz takes us to Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, to explore territory that still feels inhabited by the Civil War. I'm not someone who believes in ghosts, but on some of these battlefields and in some of these places, you can feel the presence of the 1860s. It still feels haunted by John Brown. And we'll celebrate the 75th anniversary of the Appalachian Trail, where anybody can enjoy getting a little muddy. I encourage anybody of any age to do more than you think you can. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Explore Appalachian Trails with us for music, Civil War history, and the great outdoors. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. When we met London-based travel writer Will Hyde a few weeks ago on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us why Cape Town, South Africa, is among his favorite haunts, we knew we'd have to have him back on the show. Turns out, Will recently did a road trip into the parts of Tennessee and Appalachian, Virginia, where country music originated. His English perspective lends a nice twist on getting acquainted with the traditional American music scene, from tourist hotspots like Nashville and Pigeon Forge to small towns like Bristol and Galax, where a love of performing bluegrass and mountain music lives on regardless of economic hard times. Will, good to have you back. Hi there, thank you very much. Why did you go to Appalachia in the United States? I I love coming to the States, I have to say that first of all, and I've done what you might say are all the big checklist tourist places, but I'm very lucky in that I've been able to get off the beaten track somewhat. And so now I'm going to a lot of the places that you might go to on a, well, not even a second visit, perhaps, as a, as a British tourist, but a third visit. And I think this little corner of America um, is not one that features heavily on our radar. And so when I was asked to go down there and just do a bit of a road trip, I, I jumped at the chance. It was fantastic. And was it a success? Did you find that magical sort of slice of culture that a lot of people would just go, wow, I didn't know that was still around? Definitely, definitely. I mean, I think from a British point of view, it's always interesting because, I mean, we get a lot of American TV here. So whenever you go to the States, it's almost like we're actors taking part in a movie or a TV series and everything is, you know, it sounds like a cliche, but everything is bigger in America. And there's a definite wow factor when you come from our side of the pond. And also, I've got to say, there's the people are fantastic, but with an English accent, you can go have a, such a different experience. Everyone is, oh, wow, where are you from? And it's so easy to make conversation and meet people and chat, which I think I'm not sure ever happens quite the same way the other way around. But just meeting people, I guess, is, is one of the major things. Well, now, when I travel in England, you can go hiking or into a little village and you step into the pub. And if you sit at the bar, people just assume you want to talk and you've got friends right off the bat. Is there an equivalent when you were in the Appalachian region? I think everyone everyone was just so friendly. We were just chatting the whole time. I was there with a, a photographer from the magazine. Uh-huh. We started off in, in Pigeon Forge because we were going to Dollywood and to meet uh, Dolly herself. In the diner that morning, when people hear the accents, they're chatting and what are you here for? And wow, you're here to meet Dolly. And everything just flowed from there. Extremely friendly. Okay, now you met Dolly Parton. She seems like the queen of country music. And I mean, really like a queen of that region. What was it like to meet Dolly? Oh, Fantastic. I mean, they love her around there. And it's almost, you know, like having an audience. And as the time got closer and closer, we were getting more and more excited. I have to say the I can't, I mean, luckily, I was taping the interview, I can't really remember too much of what I said, because I was so excited. I was thinking it'd probably be a little inappropriate if I asked her to do a duet uh, into my microphone on Islands in the Stream. So luckily didn't embarrass myself <laughs> by doing that. But then just, no, she's fantastic. She's a very small lady. Uh, I mean, I must admit, she has a tiny, tiny waist. Quite quite extraordinary. Keeps herself in good shape, I have to say. And just everybody around there loves her. When we said we were going to meet Dolly, everyone's eyes just lit up. It was fantastic. Why do people love her so much there? Well, I think immediately in Pigeon Forge... Now, Pigeon Forge is, is her home, right? Or her hometown. Pigeon Forge is her home, yeah, which is where Dollywood is. I mean, someone might email you and tell you I'm wrong, but I think a lot of the reason that Pigeon Forge has, has grown up is because of Dolly and Dollywood. Mm-hmm. And I think she just she provides, directly or indirectly, a lot of employment around there. Yeah, and and that, also people are very proud of her success. Well, and she's brought a lot of attention to her region and, and her music. Uh, when you wrote about Pigeon Forge in your article, America's Country Music Heartland, You said it was lovable kitsch. How did you mean that? 
I mean, it's, you know, it's not going to win any grand prizes for culture, that's for sure. I mean, there are stores down the main street which are uh, 365 day a year Christmas stores. So, I mean, you know, if you're there in June and you want to stock up on ornaments for your Christmas tree, <laughs> that's the place to head. So I think, you know, if you put your tongue in your cheek and, and just accept it for what it is, it's a pleasant little town. I mean, it, it's... So don't look for a high culture, look for a fun-loving culture, I suppose. Absolutely, yes, that would be true. What was Dollywood like? Uh, Dollywood was great fun. Dollywood was great fun. I mean, it's a mix of things to do for all the family, and also they had some fantastic roller coaster rides, which is what I was interested in. Now, that's the sort of commercial end of the Appalachian area mm. and Dollywood and everything, but... I loved reading about the jam session you went to in a, in a grocery store in Floyd. You wrote where yuppie meets hippie meets redneck, and everybody seems to get along. Describe that scene for us. Well, the Friday night uh, jamboree in the Floyd country store, I mean, I have never seen anything like it. Music was so ingrained in that region. And, I mean, you know, we met a young, I think he was 16-year-old guy who was making his own violins. It's just, the music is so ingrained, and I love the history of it going back over the generations. And it all seemed to come together in this uh, Friday night jamboree, which was just, I think you paid $5 on the door. Uh, it started off with an hour of gospel, and then just the band came on, and everyone hit the floor, and then it was chucking it down outside. Mm -hmm. It was brewing up a storm, and everyone was inside having a great time. Now, would you say this is, this is bluegrass? That's a bluegrass jamboree? Predominantly, yes. It's it's mostly bluegrass, and uh, like I said, it starts off with an hour of gospel. Okay. But just a great experience, and I mean, gosh, for, for $5, the best $5 you can spend. Now, I was at Layla's Bluegrass Hillbilly and Country Inn in Nashville, and it, it sounds similar to the jam session you saw at Floyd there, where there's just this love of music, and there's this culture where people can swap in and out. One minute, one guy's playing this instrument. Suddenly, somebody walks in the door, hey, here's uh, some old friend, and he'll grab the violin, and then guy pulls up a banjo, and everybody's speaking the same language. They're in the same groove. What was the, the energy you felt when you were at a good jamboree? Well, it's pretty much how you described it. I mean, it is just such an amazing outpouring of energy. I mean, I remember another place we went to, which we just pretty much stumbled across, which was in Townsend near Pigeon Forge. And someone just said, uh, you know, are you going up to the old-time uh, reunion? And we said, well, you know, we probably go along if you say it's worth it. And as we drove up, you could hear, and there were people on the porch just jamming, and we went around the back, and there were people uh, flat-foot dancing, and there were people in little groups playing their musical instruments. Mm. Uh, and we, we stayed there. I, I thought, oh, I'll just you know pop in for half an hour, and I think we ended up staying all afternoon. It oh, was, that's it was great amazing. travel. Flat-foot dancing, that's kind of like hillbilly tap dancing? Exactly, yeah. yeah. That, I would have called it tap <laughs> dancing, but I was, I was told it was flat-footing. Hillbilly tap dancing. By the way, I'm speaking with uh, Will Hyde. He's a travel writer from London. He writes for The Times in London, and he's written an article called America's Country Music Heartland. It's so fun to think of an Englishman coming to the United States, going into Appalachia, and just discovering this beautiful part of our culture. I'll tell you, looking at a hillbilly band playing, you, you look at the violin, the banjo, the string bass, the guitar, the mandolin, and you think how these instruments have evolved over the generations and Absolutely. what an incredible, sophisticated wall of sound it is. And some people think hillbillies, and they think Jed Clampert, and uh, not a very uh, cultured gang, but it is a very sophisticated, exciting, filled-with-energy kind of music form. And it has roots. I mean, it goes back to Celtic roots and African-American roots. What's your understanding of the history that sort of overlaps and pulls together as you explore this area. You mentioned in your article that it's as you walk the Appalachian Trail, it's easy to picture those who walked on that trail before you, their culture, their instruments, how they all blended into this country culture. Well, absolutely. I mean, physically, you can see it. We went to uh, one church near Cades Cove in the, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. When they were building the church, because they cut down the trees and the sap was still quite raw in the trees, when they pushed... Uh, all got together and lifted it up to put the, the beams in, the sweat of their hands reacted with the sap and you can still see the handprints in the roof of the church. Now that kind of thing just blows me away because I love history. I've never really understood people who don't like history, to be honest. But when you can just, you know, when history like that comes alive and you look up and you see handprints, to me, I mean, the, the link between then and now, it's, it's just, uh, I mean, I almost welled up. But then also, as you said, with, with the music, I mean, I don't have a great appreciation, I don't think many English people do, of the history there. But when I went to this part of America, you find out, you know, that all these instruments have come from the British Isles 
And then, you know, the banjo has African-American influences and it just all comes together over time. And the historical aspect of this blew me away. Ah, it's a beautiful thing to be aware of as you're enjoying just a simple jam session that it just didn't pop up yesterday. This is part of an evolution that's uh, deep roots into the culture. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Will Hyde, a travel writer from London who writes for The Times there, and he just wrote an article called America's Country Music Heartland. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Sally is on the line from Lavelle, Pennsylvania. Sally, thanks for your call. Thank you. I'm wondering what town or holler of the Appalachian region gives you the best sense for life and old-time bluegrass today, just as it was back then. And if you might share some backroad secret destinations that strike you as most flavorful and authentic. They have this uh, road called the Crooked Trail, which is a, a music trail. I think if you Google it, there's a lot on that. And then head to, uh, there's a small town called Galax, which has a very strong music tradition. And then just a, a wee bit further east, I would definitely say you should end up in Floyd on a Friday night for the jam session. Um, and if I really had to get off the fence, and depending on how much time you had, I would say perhaps just go to Floyd for a, a long weekend and, and definitely enjoy that Friday night jamboree session. By the way, you mentioned the Crooked Road. It's got a wonderful website, thecrookedroad.org, and it, you can mm. click and listen to different bluegrass bands playing and so on. I don't think the region's uh, famous for its high cuisine, but I imagine you ate very well when you consider the ambiance and the energy and the music and the people all around you. Let's finish, Will, just with uh, one very memorable meal you had as you were exploring America's country music heartland. I love American food. I always put on pounds, I have to say. I think it's a combination of the driving and I have no willpower, excuse the pun on my name, but you know, if something can be deep fried, then I just say, go ahead, deep fry it. I think one meal that was memorable, halfway through the trip, we had been eating a lot of fantastic, but not very healthy food. And we thought, right, we've got to just, you know, stop this and we're going to have a healthy salad. So that's what we ordered, which just came with an absolute mountain of cheese on top of it. When we expressed a bit of surprise, this lady just looked at us and she was like, "You don't, y'all don't have cheese on your salads back home." <laughs> so um, my attempt to eat healthily. Good just luck went eating wrong, healthy. All right. Yeah. Well, we could say the same thing about some of our experiences in the pubs of England. I think it's. Uh, oh, absolutely. Get... The British person talking about good food is on, <laughs> no. on thin ice, really. Very nice. Well, it's a beautiful, tasty low ground. I love biscuits and gravy. Honestly, I'm also the only English person who likes iced tea. Will Hyde, thank you yeah. so much for shining a little light on a slice of our country from uh, your English perspective. Post your tips for old-time music discoveries in the radio section of ricksteves.com. We'll look at hiking the Appalachian Trail in just a bit. Next, we're heading up to Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, with Tony Horowitz to explore how the legacy of 19th-century abolitionist John Brown lives on. We're well past 150 years now since John Brown and his company of men, white and black, raided the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry. They wanted to draw attention to the issue of slavekeeping by any means possible. Brown was later captured by U.S. forces led by Robert E. Lee and executed. But as the Civil War song about him says, his legacy lives on. Brown's raiders captured the attention of Americans in the North and in the South, but for different reasons. 
the spark they lit would soon turn into all-out civil war. Today, the picturesque region along the Potomac and the Shenandoah River still looks a lot like what soldiers, slaves, and freemen saw back in the 19th century. Joining us now on Travel with Rick Steves to help shed light on the dramatic history of John Brown is best-selling author Tony Horwitz. Tony's latest book, Midnight Rising, takes us on a journey into the world of John Brown and helps us understand why John Brown's infamous raid still resonates in today's politically divided America. Tony, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So your book really kicks off with a uh, quite an exciting night. Tell us what happened on October 16th, 1859. Well, on that night, it was uh, wet and cold, and John Brown, this uh, militant abolitionist, leads 18 guerrilla fighters in a surprise attack on the Federal Armory at Harper's Ferry, Virginia, which is in the largest slave state in the country at the time. And he wanted to seize the guns there, uh, free and armed slaves, and really uh, overthrow the institution of slavery. It's amazing in reading your book how that one event did so much to galvanize the North and at the same time enrage the South. Yeah, it's, it's really a, a rare instance where a man and a mission uh, really changed the course of history. Uh, often it's uh, large social and economic forces that we talk about with history, but this is an individual who took it upon himself to do something that really uh, helped spark the Civil War by galvanizing anti-slavery opinion in the North and causing uh, really uh, panic and paranoia in the South. And this really uh, started the ball rolling towards the war that broke out 18 months later. Was John Brown really sort of intellectually uh, engaged in this? Did he know the gravity of what he was doing? Or was he just some kind of uh, extremist? Uh, who, Who was the man, John Brown? He absolutely knew what he was doing. Uh, This had been his lifelong mission. He'd spent decades laying the groundwork, and he felt that slavery was a state of war and had to be met in kind. He was impatient with the talk, with Washington, with uh, nothing really happening to resolve this issue, and decided he needed to do this uh, daring act to force the nation to face the issue and also perhaps to bring on the great conflict that he felt was necessary to extinguish slavery. Was he driven by his religious convictions? It was in part religion. Uh, He was a staunch Calvinist with a very uh, strong sense of sin and the need to root it out, both in oneself and in others and in the nation at large. And slavery was, of course, the great sin of the nation at the time. A lot of the Civil War landscape is paved over, but there's a lot of battlefield parks that can be quite evocative. What was it that really struck you? Well, for all that has been paved over, there are still just wonderful sites uh, all across the East and in, in parts further West where, you, you know, you can really do a bit of time travel. You can go into these landscapes that really haven't changed that much and really hear the echoes of the past. I'm not someone who believes in ghosts, but on some of these battlefields and in some of these places, you can feel the presence of the 1860s. And that's another reason I love Harper's Ferry. It's this uh, almost a ghost town where the history is still incredibly vivid. It still feels haunted by John Brown. So describe really Harper's Ferry. When, When we go there as a visitor, what captivates us? What's it like? It's essentially a river gorge. Uh, It's where the Potomac and Shenandoah rivers meet and then roar uh, through the Blue Ridge Mountains uh, down towards Washington. Uh, So you have this really quite small town on a point of land ringed by thousand-foot cliffs and the crashing rivers. And because Harper's Ferry never really recovered from John Brown's raid and the Civil War, This formerly industrial town is now a kind of brooding ruin Mm. uh, with wonderful old buildings and really uh, almost no sign of modernity. You not only went to Harper's Ferry, but you joined a five-mile night walk on the 150th anniversary of the raid. That was such a beautiful way to kick off your book, starting with the original and then the account of your night walk. Tell us about that. Well, before his raid on Harper's Ferry, Brown rented a secluded farmhouse in the Maryland Hills, five miles from Harper's Ferry, where he gathered uh, his men and weapons. And it was from there that he launched his attack with this night march uh, down through the hills and along the river and over the Potomac Bridge uh, into Harper's Ferry. And on the 150th uh, anniversary of that event, 
I went with a park historian and a horse-drawn wagon along that same route at the exact same time uh, to really feel what it was like and to be there. And it really enabled me to, I think, describe this historical scene more vividly, and it became the start of my book. It was a wonderful way to uh, do tourism in a kind of slightly crazed way. Uh, You know, it's hard, particularly in parts of America that are very familiar to us, uh, to experience them in a fresh way. And I found by uh, getting off the beaten track in Virginia and Maryland and Pennsylvania, uh, finding some very obscure historical sites like the burial place of Stonewall Jackson's arm, that uh, this landscape became new to me, uh, and it became a lot of fun to explore and write about. That's fun. That's injecting fun into your travel. You did it at the same hour. Coincidentally, the weather was the same. Uh, For Mm -hmm. you, the landscape had changed little. I mean, how Mm -hmm. could you not write about that if you're just so inspired by that, that night march? Yeah, in that instance, I was very fortunate because the night was very uh, cool and wet, just as it was in 1859, and that particular landscape really hasn't changed much. So you go on the same uh, path that Brown and his men did between these uh, fog-shrouded mountains and along the river and across that bridge. Even John Brown's fort, as it's called, the armory house that became his headquarters, is still standing there Mm. in Harper's Ferry, and so that's where we ended our march. I'm Rick Steves. We're talking with Tony Horowitz and Tony's latest book, Midnight Rising, John Brown and the Raid that Sparked the Civil War. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. John's on the line in Painesville, Ohio. John, thanks for your call. Hey, how you doing, Rick? Doing well. Do you have a comment for Tony? Well, I could probably talk all day about Harper's Ferry. <laughs> First of all, let me, let me tell you that it's beautiful down there. You know, I was down there this year. My brother and I went down and from Gettysburg, which is a very doable trip to hit Antietam and Harper's Ferry. And I was amazed that the Shenandoah and the Potomac met at the point. It's like stepping back in 1859. I looked down to Main Street. I'm like, wow, Mac, I can just picture the people staying here. What I would like to know is why they had to take him out of Harper's Ferry to hang him. Mm-hmm. That's the part I can't yeah. understand. Right. Yeah, the raid occurs in Harper's Ferry and close by, but when he's captured... They try him in the county courthouse, and it so happens the county seat of what was then Jefferson County, Virginia, uh, was not in Harper's Ferry. It was in the town of Charlestown, eight miles away. So that's where he was tried and executed. Oh, okay. And it's also a picturesque town. You can see the uh, courthouse where he was tried uh, looks uh, almost exactly the same. You can even see the site where he was hanged. Uh, wow. And also, as you mentioned, it's quite close to Civil War sites. Uh, one of my favorites, Antietam, uh, one of the most beautiful battlefield parks in America, is just 10 miles from Harper's Ferry. I agree. And I was awestruck by the Bloody Lane. What's the Bloody yeah. Lane, John? That, that's where the Confederates kind of lined up there, and they fought over that. And Union somehow was able to overtake these guys entrenched in, a, in a, like a little ditch. And the one Union guy, I guess, said they could walk like a mile without stepping on on ground. There were so many bodies yeah. there. Hey, John, you sound like you really are touched and moved by these Civil War sites. Do you have to be a Civil War buff when you visit to really be adequately uh, impacted? No, I, I think once you get in there, you'll, you'll be amazed, you know, that these men, you know, farmhands, you know, sometimes they were just boys. Like with Gettysburg, you know, you go down there, you can walk on the field and like, wow, man, these guys actually fought here. You just look out the field, you'll be amazed. You, you can't help but be moved by some of the stuff these men did. And the sites are designed in such a way where uh, a beginner can go there and, and put it back oh, together. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Oh, yes, and they have little plaques and signs and guides are available. They've I also preserved the landscape that might not otherwise have remained so because of these battlefield parks. Uh, so you have these uh, stretches of fields and farms and fences and sunken roads um, right. that otherwise might have been paved over. So even if you're not a, a Civil War buff, just the beauty of these places and the sense you get of what the landscape, uh, both human and natural, looked like in the 19th century. No, I, I agree. Thanks for the call, John. Thank you. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. Tony, you're on a book tour. You're going all through the North and the South, I noticed, from your schedule. And you're, you've got a book that uh, is talking about an event that, as we talked about, galvanized the North and enraged the South. How is the Civil War baggage lingering, you know, in the North and the South today from your travel experience? Is the book treated differently in different parts of the country? 
Um, not this book uh, so much. I don't think people know about uh, John Brown to the degree they do the Civil War. When I traveled talking about Confederates in the attic, that's a different matter when you're into Civil War memory, particularly in the South. Okay, then how, how would that be then? I'm just curious, what is the feeling you get when you go to a book event about the Civil War in the South compared to the North? Yeah, I think it's fair to say memory of the war, first of all, is much keener in the South. Uh, almost the entire war was fought in the South. Uh, much of the region was, you know, devastated uh, for the better part of a century. Uh, so for all kinds of reasons, I think uh, memory is sharper and feelings are stronger. In the North, uh, many people have sort of forgotten about it and moved on. But with John Brown, he really strikes so many raw nerves in our culture about race and religious fundamentalism, uh, terror, violence, the right of an individual to defy their government. And I find opinion on him almost wherever I go tends to split about 50-50. When you talk about sort of a terrorist almost, and we've got a lot going on in our country today, what sort of relevance does John Brown have? Is there, is there some sort of a appropriateness that Midnight Rising, your book about John Brown, is coming out in this day and age? Well, I, I certainly didn't plan it that way, but I think what we're seeing now, um, as occurred in 1859, is a, a troubled time in which change is uh, bubbling up from the extremes on right and left. When people are frustrated with the situation, when they feel their government is incapable of uh, bridging the divides or really resolving uh, our most pressing issues, people take things into their own hands. And you see that happening now, and this is what uh, John Brown did. Hopefully, we're not headed for, you know, the kind of cataclysmic violence that occurred uh, after his raid with the war. But I think there are uh, similarities in the uh, kind of uncompromising and often blunt solutions that people are looking for. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Tony Horwitz and his uh, latest book, Midnight Rising, John Brown and the Raid that Sparked the Civil War. Tony, a lot of us have this gone-with-the-wind image of the South during the Civil War. Does that match your experience as you traveled to research your book? No, it, it really doesn't, particularly in terms of the history. We look back uh, at the South through the prism of its loss in the Civil War, so it has this aura of lost cause and underdog, and because of Gone with the Wind, uh, this romance around it as well. But really, um, what John Brown was reacting against was a South that was in many ways not the underdog, it was the top dog. Politically, it really held uh, sway over the government for, for decades, and cotton and slavery were on the march in this era. So I think we really uh, misremember that era. I didn't realize that until I read your book, that uh, the Supreme Court apparently was dominated by Southerners, Congress was dominated by the South, cotton was just a dominant industry, and this was all in the 1850s? Yeah, 12 of the first uh, 16 presidential elections are won by slaveholders. Really, the South uh, holds the reins of government for all but a few years between the nation's founding and the Civil War. Tony, you write that you're a true believer in the archive of the feet. What do you mean by that? Well, when you're doing historical research, uh, most of it is typically in archives going through documents. But I really feel and it's important to also get your, your boots on the ground, uh, use the archive of the feet and go, uh, in my case, not only to Harper's Ferry, but all the sites in Kansas where Brown also fought and really emerged as a radical abolitionist, his uh, home uh, in Ohio and his birthplace in Connecticut. I try and get to as many of the sites as I can to see where the history happened and what we can learn from the landscape, and also, again, just to soak up the atmosphere to infuse your writing. Now, you draw some interesting comparisons between Brown's raid in 1859 and bin Laden's raid on 9-11. Talk about that. Well, there are some uh, striking parallels. Uh, Brown is leading 19 men in uh, uh, what ultimately becomes a, a suicide strike on a symbol of American power, a federal arsenal just uh, 60 miles from the Capitol, and he causes a, a shock and terror that lead the nation into war. Uh, so in that sense, uh, it's similar. Brown, of course, is also a religious fundamentalist. But I think it's wrong to lump him with uh, terrorists in our own era who often uh, uh, slaughter uh, indiscriminately. Brown uh, didn't do that. He was very targeted in what he did. He had a clear program, and his cause was racial justice. But in a way, it was ends justifies the means. 
Yep. That's the big question that Brown raises. And this is part of the reason I think he's worthy of continued study and debate. Uh, There are no easy answers to the questions he raises. Uh, Do ends ever justify means? Is violence ever justified in the pursuit of justice? Does an individual have uh, the right to defy laws that he or she views as immoral and unjust? Uh, There are no easy answers to these questions. And John Brown's body's been demolded in the grave now for a century and a half. What lessons can we draw from Brown's rate about battling inequality in our generation? I think one lesson we can draw is that this task is never easy or popular. Abolitionists in his day were a small minority, uh, often made fun of as cranks and scolds. And really militant abolitionists like Brown were, you know, a a tiny fringe. Yet they were able to... uh, really help change the nation and move it forward. So I think we also need to be prepared for uh, such individuals who may uh, just emerge when we're not looking for them. So I think uh, real injustice never stands forever, and it may take some time, but just as uh, John Brown did with slavery, uh, problems in our own era, we may look back a few decades from now and and say, what were they thinking? Mm -hmm. And if you could talk to John Brown today, and if he knew the personal fate that awaited him, and if he knew that of the horrific war he was going to contribute to starting, and he knew the result, do you think he would do it all again the same way? Absolutely. I think his intent in doing what he did uh, was to bring on a great conflict. I mean, I'm sure he wouldn't have been happy about the loss of life, but he felt this kind of clash uh, was necessary to liberate slaves and fulfill America's founding dream of liberty and equality. So I think he would be gratified by the result. And it was worth giving his own life, in his mind. Absolutely. He was prepared to die. Uh, He said that many times. He was ready to lay down his life for this larger cause, as were the men who fought with him. Tony Horowitz, author of Midnight Rising, John Brown and the Raid that Sparked the Civil War. Tony's website is TonyHorowitz.com. Thank you so much for being with us, Tony. Thanks for having me. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. His soul goes marching on. An easy way to enjoy the countryside around Harper's Ferry is a walk on the Appalachian Trail. It skirts along an old canal towpath through the lower town and right past John Brown's fort. If you're lucky... Some of the grubbier hikers you meet might even be taking the trail all the way through from Georgia to Maine. Up next, we celebrate the 75th anniversary of the Appalachian Trail with a man who's hiked the better part of its 2,100 miles. It's Travel with Rick Steves. A life goal for some hikers is to join the 2000 Club by completing the entire length of the Appalachian Trail. Most will start in Georgia's Chattahoochee National Forest, work their way north through the Smokies, the Blue Ridge, Harper's Ferry's about the midway mark, then up to the Catskills, the rugged White Mountains, and 14 states later, eventually finish up in the wilds of Maine. Or you can just enjoy a little bit of American wilderness anywhere along the way. Albert Dragon was born the same year the Appalachian Trail was dedicated, and he's become acquainted with most of the trail in his post-retirement years. He describes his exploits in his book called Avalanche and Gorilla Jim. Albert, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Albert, what is your fascination with the Appalachian Trail? What's special about this trail? It starts with a desire to go backpacking in a family where nobody knows anything about backpacking, and neither do my friends. When I was younger, I had this desire to be out in the woods. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. I uh, became a lawyer along the way. As I got older, I I, uh, sort of felt that maybe this was the time to do a little bit of hiking, and I'm glad I did. It was a great experience, and that's the reason why I wrote the book. You hiked most of the trail, but not all of it. How many miles do you figure you hiked on the trail? Uh, 1,600. That would be from Georgia to Vermont. Wow. Now, the Appalachian Trail is turning 75. It was born in 1937, and uh, I think you were too. Is that right? That is correct. So you're both the same age. (laughs) <laughs> right, exactly. What advice would you give to, what do you call it, septuagenarians about uh, traveling a 1,000 miles on your feet? 
I encourage anybody of any age to do more than you think you can. Live the prime of your life, no matter what your age is. If you feel that uh, hiking or backpacking or doing anything is what you want to do, that's the thing you should do. Now, I I, want to give a little caveat here and say you just can't get off your sofa and hike 1,600 miles. I would recommend for people in that age area to go to their doctor, check it out, see if you are in good enough shape, and get a uh, an exercise program. Build yourself up gradually. And even for people who are in good shape, I think most people will do some exercise before they go out on the trail to make sure that they're not overwhelmed by it. The Appalachian Trail can be steep in places. The days can be long. You're carrying anywhere from... 35 to up to 50 pounds on your back. So you want to be in good shape and enjoy the trip. Now, after this uh, hike, did you feel younger or older when you finally uh, called it a hike? Well, you feel younger in a way. Anybody, no matter what their age is, is going to feel a little worn out after an extensive hike up and down mountains. But I think it does make you feel younger, and I think you get to appreciate a lot of things more by virtue of being out there. For example, we take water for granted. You turn on a faucet, you get it. <laughs> and I know you're, you're probably very familiar with this, but if, if you're in the back country, you have to find the water. And unlike the cowboy movies, you just can't dip it out and drink it. You have to purify it using filters or pills. And today they have ultraviolet pens that you could use for purifying the water. So you, you get a greater appreciation of everything. And I think anybody who has backpacked or been out in the woods for a while, gets to appreciate things, even food. We we eat relatively simple foods out there, but everything tastes great. A little uh, snack for lunch feels like you're eating at the Four Seasons. It's it's that great an experience. Oh, yeah. I remember, you know, Spam and Pilot Bread just tasted like gourmet food on, on a top of a peak when you've been hiking all day long. You wrote in your book that people you met along the way restored your faith in humanity. How's that? Well, when you're out there by yourself, sometimes you do need help. We were hiking, that is uh, two other guys and me, in a sleet storm for several days. And sleet is just about the worst weather. Uh, Rain is bad, snow is bad, but when it's a combination of both and you've gotten soaked, you're cold and wet, and you've come to the last day of your hike, and unfortunately, you don't come out of the woods where you would like to come out. And we had to call the guy who was going to pick us up. The cell phones did not work. We found this old country road, and there was a house on the road. I went up to the door and I knocked on it, and a sort of older middle-aged woman answered. And I said, I'm sorry to bother you, ma'am, but we need to use a telephone to contact somebody. And she looked at us, and we're grimy, been out in the woods for five days, unshaven. And the first thing she said, you boys had breakfast yet this morning? Mm. And she insisted that we come in, and she made breakfast for us. Mm. That's beautiful. Other times, Gorilla Jim, uh, my buddy, and the one who's in the title of the book, uh, fell about two stories. Uh, He was climbing up the side of a mountain, and a ledge broke. He broke ribs. And a woman in North Jersey took him in to recuperate uh, until he could get back on the trail. You you see that all the time. People will pick you up and give you rides. I know in big cities where I came from, you wouldn't think of hitchhiking. But out there, it is something that is done from time to time. It's just fantastic how people treat you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Albert Dragon, and Albert has uh, written a book called Avalanche and Gorilla Jim, Appalachian Trail Adventures and Other Tales. Albert hiked 1,600 miles along this 2,100-mile trail that goes from Georgia all the way to Maine. You know, Albert, you talk about trail names in the book. What's this uh, phenomenon of people having trail names? It's uh, a nickname. Everybody gets one. Mine was Avalanche. I can tell you how I got my name. Down in Georgia and North Carolina in early spring, there's a lot of rain. And we were coming down a mountain one time, and uh, there's a lot of mud. It's like grease of the mountains, 
you just can't avoid it. I started to slip, and I caused a landslide of rocks and water, and my buddy Jim said to me, you're causing an avalanche. And he said, you know, that's a good name for you, avalanche. I can tell you that I didn't really care for it at first. I thought maybe a better name would come along. But as, as time went on, people started to say, hey, avalanche, what are you making for dinner? <laughs> You got Gorilla Jim, you got Avalanche. I know you met Hacksaw and Backtracker and all sorts of fun people on the trail. Describe the trail, Albert. Like you said, your cell phone didn't work and you and you have to cook for yourself. It's not uh, country lanes going from village to village. Is it really completely out in the middle of the wilds? It is remote in most parts. I remember one night sitting in my tent thinking that if something happened to us, it would take over a day of hiking to get out of there. Hmm. Uh, but it's not like that all over. There are places that are closer to towns, closer to roads, and some that are remote. As far as the terrain goes, it can be very steep, particularly in Georgia, North Carolina, New Hampshire, Maine. So it varies, but uh, don't think of it as a walk in the park. Right. It It isn't. It's a narrow trail. It's about 18 inches wide in most places. Sometimes you do get on a Jeep road, but most of it is in a remote area. Sounds like a great experience. It sounds just like a delight. What Do you remember any towns as being particularly charming? One that comes to mind is Hot Springs, North Carolina. The Appalachian Trail actually goes right down the main street. They had a charming Victorian uh, house that we stayed at while we were there. It's, it's popularly known in the hiking community as Elmer's because it's owned by a gentleman by the name of Elmer. Uh, Waynesboro, Virginia is probably the friendliest trail town where they have people who will actually come and pick you up and bring you into town. And they do it as a public service. Now, you're going through some pretty big population centers, but as you're on this trail, did you feel there was a lot of crowds or was it pretty solitary? It depends on the season. I started at the time that most people start their hikes from Georgia. That's uh, March and early April. At that time, you would get about 30 to 40 people a day starting out. They drop off pretty fast. End of the first week, about 10% have given up, and, and it goes on from there. Also, they, they spread out. Some people hike a lot faster than others, and they get ahead, and sometimes uh, you get ahead. But uh, it's not like walking the streets of a big city. It's mm -hmm. pretty spread out. I've hiked through Pennsylvania by myself, out of phase with the other hikers, and there were days that I didn't see a hiker. So it all, it all depends on the season and where you are. All right. Randy's on the line in Rocky River, Ohio. Randy, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you, sir. Um, I, I was just wondering, what are the most breathtaking views along the Appalachian Trail? I know it spans a, through a couple states, but I was just wondering if there's maybe just one point or a couple points that are really breathtaking. Yes. The, the one that you see the picture of the most is uh, McAfee's Knob, which is in Virginia. There's a place called Max Patch, which is down in North Carolina, which has a fantastic 360-degree uh, view. In Pennsylvania, there are places like Hawk Mountain, which are easy to get to, even if you're uh, not hiking the trail. There are ways to get up uh, side roads to it. So, yeah, there are many great ones. Have you done any of the hike, Randy, or are you thinking about it? Uh, you know what? Um, I, I love traveling, and especially in the U.S., and it's something I'd like to do, especially along the Appalachian Trail, but uh, we'll see what happens. Right now, I'm just uh, I'm a high school senior, so we'll see what happens in the coming years. All right. Uh, Albert was also talking about triple crowners. Albert, tell Randy and me about these triple crowners. What's the deal with that? A triple crowner is someone who has completely hiked the Appalachian Trail, the Continental Divide Trail, and the Pacific Crest Trail. Those are the three long trails in this country in three different places, on the East Coast, sort of in the middle, and wow. on the West Coast. And I believe each one of them is over 2,000 miles long. They must have some good stories to tell. Randy, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you, Rick. Thank you. Okay. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Albert Dragon, and Albert has hiked most of the Appalachian Trail. 2,100-mile hike that takes you from Georgia all the way to Maine. Albert, a lot of people don't have the weeks and weeks it takes to do the whole thing, and they would just do sections of the hike. Talk about the option of doing section hiking as opposed to the through hike. 
Actually, Rick, most people do sections in the entire history of the Appalachian Trail. There are less than 13,000 people who have gone from one end to the other. But in the course of a year, between two and three million people will hike a part of it. So it's not unusual to do that. It's actually, that's the norm. I encourage people, I I agree with you, there aren't too many people who can take six months to hike the whole thing. If you live anywhere near the trail, and the trail does go from Georgia to Maine, by all means, give it a try. There's so much information out there, particularly on the internet, about uh, the trail. You can uh, dial up the Appalachian Trail Conservancy. They have fantastic information about every section of it. Mm. Now, what does the Appalachian Trail Conservancy do to maintain the trail? The Appalachian Trail Conservancy is composed of an organization with sort of 30 branches. There's a branch for every part of the trail. So every section has an organization, a local organization, that maintains the trail. That is, they walk it. If there are blowdowns, that's when a tree comes down across the trail. They'll remove it. They'll maintain it. They sometimes have a ridge runner who will be walking the trail in case somebody has a problem. Are there campsites and little cabins and so on? Uh, They have what they call shelters. There are about 250 of them spaced out. They're supposed to be about 10 miles apart, but sometimes you'll find two in five miles, and then you won't find one for 20 miles. Uh, The shelter, if you can picture a shed, a large shed with the front cut off, so you have three walls and a roof, and a wooden floor, that's the place where you can put your sleeping bag on the floor and sleep there. At least you're protected from the elements to some extent. There's usually water nearby, be it a a stream or a a spring. Sometimes, if you're lucky, there's a privy there, too. It may not sound like much. You don't book a place to toss your sleeping bag. You just, it's first come, first serve? Right. There are a few places in New Hampshire, where you do have to book it. They're, they're kind of fancy places, and unlike the ones I just described. Probably different uh, styles of hikers. Some people who want to spring out for some boutique little B&B along the way, and others who are going to be camping every night. Exactly, yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Albert Dragon about hiking the Appalachian Trail. Albert's new book is Avalanche and Gorilla Jim, Appalachian Trail Adventures and Other Tales. Albert, I just traveled across much of the United States, and it occurred to me there is so much history in the eastern half compared to where I live in the western half. You must encounter a lot of American history along this 14-state trail. What were your favorite bits of American history that you encountered as you hiked? There's so much Civil War history, particularly in the Virginia area. The one story that I recall, we, we had been looking at a historical place where some battle took place, And a gentleman came up on a bicycle and he started to tell us about it. One of the Union generals would send orders out to his other generals by a piece of paper wrapped around a cigar. And that's how he would communicate with them. And it seemed kind of unusual. I guess it's one way of keeping your generals uh, interested by sending them a cigar periodically. Of all the places you encountered, is there one museum or exhibit that stood out in in your memories? The one thing that stood out was not a particular museum because we very rarely were able to get off the trail to go into town to see those things. But we came across the Lindemood School, which was over 100 years old, I don't know, 100, 150 years old. It was sort of in the back country, one-room schoolhouse. I had never seen one before. It's, it's unlocked. You can walk in there, see the desk, see the potbelly stove, see the... Hmm long-handled bell where the teacher would ring it to uh, get the kids in into the uh, classroom. Those are the things that impressed me. It was like walking through the Civil War to walk through the places in Virginia, knowing that a battle had occurred there and you could still see the remnants of a Hmm. stone wall. What about critters? What kind of wildlife did you encounter on the Appalachian Trail? Most people are concerned about the bears. We have black bears in the east. The truth is, They really don't want any parts of human beings. And if you leave them alone, they will usually leave you alone. The the bears that are a problem are ones that you come upon suddenly and scare them. Or a mother with a cub. Uh, That can be a dangerous situation. And in those situations, 
the best thing to do is to not stare at them, don't make eye contact, sort of back off, and just uh, go around them or let them go on their way. Well, now you hiked 1,600 miles. What was the biggest animal you encountered? I did see bears on two occasions. On one occasion, I was hiking in New Jersey. And interestingly enough, New Jersey does have a lot of bears. Uh, You wouldn't think so, but it does. I was hiking with my niece, and uh, she was leading one day, and she starts running back down the trail towards me, and she says, there's a bear up ahead, and I started to run towards her, and she says, what are you doing? And I said, i never seen a bear before. But the, the bear the bear did uh, just cross the trail and went on its way. All right. Well, we'll call you Avalanche right now, your trail name. Avalanche, thanks so much for sharing your adventures on the Appalachian Trail. I was glad to be here. It was an absolute delight. Thank you, Rick. Albert Dragon and his book, Avalanche and Gorilla Jim, Appalachian Trail Adventures and Other Tales. We told Uncle Walter that he should be good and do all the things that we said he should. I think he would rather be out in the wood. I think we might lose Uncle Walter for good. He goes, wah, 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 wah. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at the BBC's Western House Studios in London, at OPB Radio in Portland, and at WRTI Philadelphia for their technical help. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You'll find program extras and details about each week's show behind the radio tab at ricksteves.com. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.